Real Estate Reset. We're in a, a much different market than we were at this time last year. How the market slowdown is hitting buyers and sellers. Adding insult to catastrophic injury. Now and for the rest of my life, I will have to go to ICBC and ask for approval for every little crash that left him a quadriplegic and why he's challenging the no-fault system in court and lost luggage i've been through many canceled flights and now my bag is gone now that i'm finally home what to do when your bags disappear and how to avoid the travel nightmare in the first place you're watching global bc this is global news hour at six Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. Gone are the days of multiple offers and over-asking prices in Metro Vancouver real estate. A combination of recession fears and higher interest rates has led to a dramatic drop in sales. For the first time in years, the market is starting to balance out. But it's still hard for first-time buyers. Kamal Karmali explains. Come on, let's take a look. George Kwong has had many people visit his open house, but when it comes to putting down offers... Right now, they say it's a bias market, right? They want to see how far the price is going to drop. His home, just off of Commercial Drive, has been sitting on the market for months. We don't even get phone calls. And uh, so it's... It's really bad. The market is really bad right now. Odds are you've already started seeing a lot more of these for sale signs in neighborhoods all across Metro Vancouver. Rising interest rates and surging inflation are causing buyers to be extra cautious. And that's already resulted in listings staying up a lot longer. New numbers by the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver showed a changing marketplace to start the summer. There were more than 2,400 residential home sales in Greater Vancouver in June of this year. That's down 16% compared to the previous month and a plunge of 35% compared to the same time last year. The knock-on effect of this activity is we're starting to see some softening in prices. Uh, home prices came down about 2-3% depending on what part of the region uh, you live in last month. In the Fraser Valley, nearly 1,300 homes were sold in June of this year. That's a drop of 6% when compared to May of 2022 and a massive plunge of 43% fewer homes sold when compared to the same time last year. Bad news for sellers mixed news for first-time home buyers. The good news is that the market's a lot less urgent than it was. Things are a lot more healthy. The bad news is it's really hard to qualify uh, at these prices and these interest rates, especially for a first-time home buyer. So, yeah, so. And for those hoping to sell their homes, they may have to resort to becoming landlords instead. Well, we could put on a rental market. Probably in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you got me at the right time. Real estate experts say interest rates will likely continue to be high for the rest of the year and into the next. Kamel Karamali, Global News. Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart has announced another plan to further protect Vancouver renters and another possible plank in his re-election campaign. Stewart says he will move to extend the new renter protections that were recently passed as part of the Broadway redevelopment plan to include tenants throughout the entire city. In what he calls the strongest protections in Canada, no renter along the Broadway corridor will see their rents go up if their building is redeveloped 
along with a number of other measures. Stewart wants those protections extended to all renters in the city. The agreement we make is that uh, when the uh, rental uh, building is replaced or a new rental is, is built, um, that developers get extra density as long as they have 20% of the, of the units in, in the building are uh, permanently uh, really geared for uh, folks working full-time on minimum wage. Stewart's plan would be an amendment to the Vancouver plan set to go before council for a vote on Wednesday. After years of delays and redesigns, one of the most contentious development plans in Vancouver is on the back burner again. As Amadagahi reports, it's left people pushing for more rental units frustrated with the lack of progress. People have criticized this council for the number of days this has taken. The mover of this referral votes against 90% of development. I feel that I have been maligned by two council members. I feel like I'm being maligned. The back and forth here came after multiple days debating the now passed Broadway plan. It's just one example of what some, including Vancouver's Renters Advisory co-chair Kit Sauter, says is the outgoing city council's, at times, inability to fulfill its basic function. We've got, on any given day, three to five councillors who um, are effectively filibustering. His comments coming after another delay for the long-anticipated and sometimes controversial redevelopment of the Safeway at Commercial Broadway. The public hearing now moving to after the municipal election with too many rezoning applications already on the go and limited time for councillors. My takeaway is basically that this council is completely incapable of doing their jobs. Um, end of the day, they got elected overwhelmingly, regardless of party, on a mandate to tackle housing affordability and housing availability in the city of Vancouver. None of them have been able to deliver on that. I'm extremely disappointed. If you watch any council meeting, there, there are tons and tons and tons of questions and amendments, and that's frankly chewed up a lot of the time. The project was first put forward six years ago. It's currently proposing three towers, 438 rental units of which 93 are below market rates. It's opposition though saying the delay may be good. There is not enough affordable housing on that site. We need more green space. We need to be responsive to actually having a site that works for everybody. By delaying this project we may never see that site redeveloped inside of the next decade and it's already been more than half a decade of waiting. Which, in the context of the current housing situation, advocates argue is way too long. Imadagahi, Global News. Job action is looming in B.C. Talks have broken down between the B.C. General Employees Union and the province. Our Keith Baldry is live with more on why negotiations have collapsed and a closer look at the offer that's on the table. Keith? Yeah, this is a very unusual move today, Sophie. The employer, the public service agency, for the first time I can recall, putting, uh, making public what the offer is on the table in front of the Government Employees Union. Uh, again, this is an unusual set of negotiations. The union released the, where the parties were a few weeks ago. Then there was a strike vote. Now the government has turned around and put its offer uh, in a public display. Here's how it breaks down. $2,500 signing bonus right across the board for and prorated if you work part-time. Uh, year one, 3% plus $500 
quarters, which is about 25 cents an hour increase. It works out to 3.7%. Year two, very similar numbers there. Year three, 3% plus 1% inflation hedge, uh, assuming inflation still runs high there. So a wage increase of almost 11% over three years and a signing bonus of $2,500. We'll see how that plays with the membership. Uh, certainly the union negotiating team, this is a bit of an end run around the negotiating team to talk directly to the membership specifically, I think, or particularly about that $2,500 signing bonus. We caught up with BCG President Stephanie Smith, though, and she talked about what job action could look like, not necessarily a picket line. Job action can look very different. Um, it doesn't, as I've always said, uh, necessarily mean that everyone's tools down and out on a picket line. Um, we might look at an overtime ban, for example, and we know that, you know, because of labor shortages, some ministries run on overtime. Um, it is something that our members do on a regular basis. We might look at what we call work to rule. That is where you do strictly what is in your job description, take your breaks when you're supposed to take them. And we all know that people do a lot of extras during the working day, and that might be something that we look at. So the two sides staking out uh, their positions. Keith, what is next in this dispute? Again, we're sort of an unprecedented territory here with both sides making their, their positions public. Uh, the, I think the government's hoping that this pressures the membership of the BCGU to put pressure on the negotiating team to return to the table with a prospect of that $2,500 signing bonus sitting there. If that doesn't happen, don't be surprised if this same offer is, is put in front of other public sector unions, like the Hospital Employees Union, for example, or the Nurses Union, to see if that membership would accept 11% over three years and a $2,500 signing bonus. Again, we haven't seen this situation for decades. Mm. All right, we'll see where it goes. Thanks, Keith. Meanwhile, Vancouver port truckers are also poised to Last Friday, a vote showed 693 out of 1,000 members of the United Truckers Association are in favor of job action. But the group has announced it will keep working until at least the end of July to negotiate with the port on its new rolling truck age program. That program bans trucks older than 12 years in an attempt to reduce emissions. The association argues it would be an extreme financial burden given the current high inflation. If talks fail, plans to move forward with a shutdown are expected in August. It uh, clearly states that how, how mad people are with Port of Vancouver, that how frustrated they are, that they are really suffering that this is totally an unfair policy that so that's why there's no one against us right everyone in are in the favor it's a kind of another burden on truckers and on the general public which we are not willing for Two Saanich police officers remain in hospital one week after a shocking bank robbery and shootout. The incident left the two suspects, twin brothers, dead. A total of six officers injured and the community reeling. As Kylie Stanton reports, police have been overwhelmed by public support since the violent incident. Exactly one week ago, gunfire would mark the moment lives were changed forever. We are witnessing a Bank bullets injuring six police officers, shaking their departments to the core. These police officers and first response partners are heroes. Officials releasing an update Tuesday. 
Of the three Saanich police officers who suffered gunshot wounds, one was released from hospital shortly after the incident. Two remain in care. One is in stable condition, while the other has undergone several surgeries to date and is still in the ICU. And has been showing signs of improvement day by day. The officers have a combined 23 years of service with the Saanich Police Department, working in patrol, the detective division, community engagement, and of course, the Greater Victoria Emergency Response Team. The officers' names were not released. I didn't want to uh, risk any type of uh, situation that would take away from their healing process. Victoria Police also confirming its three injured officers' conditions have remained unchanged. Echoing Chief Duffy's comments, writing, we need to do what is best for our officers and their families and respect their wishes for privacy at this time. We are wearing Blue Heart stickers today. But it's no secret, the community is behind them. On Canada Day, these stickers were worn by officers and handed out to the community honoring the six Gvert members and their acts of bravery. The police department is overflowing with cards, gifts and thoughts of well wishes. Several people have asked how can they help. A GoFundMe now nearing $200,000 in donations seems to be the place to start. The response um, you know, from the families and you know, from our, our members as well has been just gratitude. It's what's fueling the departments as the investigation into what happened here continues and information surrounding the suspects, Matthew and Isaac Octorloni, emerges. The 22-year-old brothers were the only people killed. Had it not been for those six highly trained ERT officers who ran into the line of fire, there's no doubt the outcome would have been much worse. I don't want to even think about... uh what could have happened had they not been there. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A Saanich man is going to court hoping to expose what he sees as the flaws in ICBC's no-fault system. Tim Schober was hit by a car last summer, suffering catastrophic injuries and turning his life and his family's life upside down. Why he's taking on the insurance corporation next on the News Hour. Highway 97. We'll just float through. An intense storm in the Okanagan leaves some roads looking more like rivers. The state of local emergency in Penticton later. Plus, the Bollywood boys back in the ring, ready to fight their way back to wrestling's top tier. That's still to come. Right now, though, a Saanich man who was left paralyzed after he was hit by ride, uh, while riding his bike last summer is challenging ICBC's no-fault insurance after going through the system himself. Tim Schober's entire life was changed after the crash, but he says his background as a lawyer helps him stand up for those who may not be able to question ICBC themselves. Catherine Urquhart reports. <laughs> One year ago, 67-year-old Tim Schober was a working lawyer, juggling his job and family life. Then the Saanich resident was struck by a car while riding his bike and spent seven months in hospital. He faces daily challenges with his mobility and personal care. I went from being a very healthy, active person uh, into a 
being a quadriplegic. Now, Schober is launching a constitutional challenge of ICBC's no-fault insurance, which offers limited benefits and doesn't allow him to sue for compensation. Does not provide adequate amount of money for my uh, caregivers' pay. So the amount of care that I get has been reduced from what it should be to match what ICBC's cap is. Joining him in the suit, the trial lawyers of BC. We will challenge the the validity of the legislation. Arguments will be made, evidence will be mustered, and it will probably go potentially all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, because of how important it is. And so, yes, it will take some time. The Ministry of Public Safety told Global News, while we can't comment on a potential filing that we haven't seen, government carefully considered constitutional questions in the design of the enhanced care model, which draws on the experience of other jurisdictions where similar models are in operation. I think that the people of British Columbia have been told by their government that the new insurance scheme is better than the old one. It provides better benefits, but that's not true. Again, particularly not true in the catastrophic situation. I think people need to know that they've been sold a bill of goods. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The Assembly of First Nations is meeting in Vancouver this week, but what is meant to be a time to take care of important business is now being marred by infighting surrounding its national chief. Delegates have voted to end the temporary suspension of Roseanne Archibald late this afternoon, but the chief's fight isn't over yet. Nithu Karcha explains. I know Kenny went a lot. An alleged culture of backroom deals is now front and centre as the elected national chief making an unconventional entrance to the annual meetings of the Assembly of First Nations speaks out to the membership. They erased me from the agenda. Now they put me back on. And so what I want you to know is all of these actions are because they want to silence me. With supporters of all ages, Roseanne Archibald walking in and claiming the crisis now gripping the organization started when she rejected a million-dollar staff payout, which she says revealed bigger problems. It's a real misuse of funds that the AFN has been doing for years. There have been millions of dollars in payouts at the AFN, and that's why we need this forensic audit to show all of these payouts and how they have been misusing these funds. After an investigation into bullying and harassment claims concluded last month and Archibald disclosed what the AFN executive has called confidential information, they suspended her with pay and called the allegations of corruption unfounded. People are torn, especially the women chiefs. They are torn with these events. A fair workplace investigation process, which the national chief's words and actions have made nearly impossible. But Archibald's lawyer says whistleblower policy is clear in the charter and the AFN committee never had the ability to suspend her. And they teach all lawyers this very fancy word, nemo dat non habat. They're trying to get power to themselves, which they themselves do not have. I do have a path out of this. We need to establish a new corporation based in our culture and values. The AFN members debated options on how to move forward. Being up here, it, it just it, this year is like so wrong on a lot of different levels. 
And to me, this is just a simple motion that has been put forth. Late in the day after debating the resolution, AFN members voted to end the temporary suspension of National Chief Roseanne Archibald. And first thing Wednesday, they're scheduled to vote on whether to commence a forensic audit and an internal investigation into AFN practices. Neetu Garcia, Global News, Vancouver. Still to come on the news hour, a sea of suitcases with no one to claim them. The number of bags that are misplaced and mishandled has absolutely skyrocketed. What to do when you land, but your luggage doesn't. And later, a childhood friend of Amanda Todd takes the stand. The shocking Facebook post he spotted and how he tried to have it taken down. Good evening. This problem semi still causing delays for eastbound traffic on Highway 1 through Burnaby. It's just past the Gallardi on-ramp to head eastbound and the on-ramp is partially blocked. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $26 million. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a stalled semi in Burnaby. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways, BC owned and operated for 75 years. Reports of lost luggage and baggage delays are causing plenty of frustration for travelers this summer. But what happens when your bags are never found? What type of compensation do you get? And is it worth buying extra insurance? With more, let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Andrewa. And thanks, Sophie. The number of bags that are being misplaced and mishandled at airports has skyrocketed. Many travelers reporting it's taken days, even weeks, to get their bags back in their possession. You might want to think about a carry-on instead because travel experts warn things are going to get worse before they get better. So, to avoid disappointment, it pays to be prepared. That means arriving at the airport well ahead of time so your baggage has a chance to get on the flight. Tag your luggage well, both the outside and inside, with current contact information. Most importantly, your email address and your cell phone number. Also, take a picture of your contents in the bag in case you have to make a claim and never put anything of value in your check bag like jewelry, money or medications. Under Canada's air passenger protection regulations, in the event your bag is lost, damaged or delayed, you may file a claim for the expenses you incurred up to approximately $2,300. Checked baggage is deemed lost for the purpose of compensation if the airline admits to the loss or it has been missing for more than 21 days. Impacted passengers should then submit a claim to the airline as soon as possible. As for buying extra baggage insurance, but do your research. Really important to do your homework for excess baggage insurance. So don't just show up at the airport and, and take what they're offering. You can buy excess baggage from many, many different companies. So do your homework. Extra baggage insurance is exactly like other policies. There's, they're going to go to other insurance providers first. There are going to be maximums. So you really need to find, read the fine print. Otherwise, you could be buying way too much or way too little. Now, airlines like WestJet have told us in the event important items do need to go and check luggage, it recommends guests proactively insure their items prior to traveling. Your home insurance or credit card may pay 
provide some coverage for things like baggage and damage loss. But again, read the fine print. Remember, if your baggage is delayed, the airline must compensate you up to $2,300 for items you may need until your baggage is returned to you. You will likely have to provide receipts for the items you replace. Also, in the event of a lost, damaged, or delayed bag, the airline must reimburse your checked baggage fees. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, good advice. Thank you, Ann. Just ahead, a disturbing Facebook post he couldn't ignore. I didn't want those images to be shared with my friend and didn't want other people to be seeing them. A friend of Amanda Todd takes the stand at the trial of her alleged harasser. Plus, new details about the suspect in the 4th of July mass shooting in the U.S. and startling statistics on gun violence in America. Traffic is steady in both directions over here tonight at the Alex Fraser Bridge with just a little bit of leftover volume eastbound on the connector between Knight and the S-Curve. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside the Real Canadian Superstores and Walmarts throughout BC. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com, open 9 to 9 every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. It's a number almost impossible to comprehend. Since January 1st, the United States has recorded more than 300 mass shooting events where at least four people have been hit with gunfire. That includes Monday's deadly incident in Highland Park, Illinois, where police now confirm seven deaths and one suspect in custody. Global's Reggie Giacchini has more. It would appear that nowhere in America is safe. Highland Park, Illinois, now joins a long list of towns and cities shattered by gun violence. None of us think this will happen in our city, and we need to ask ourselves why this is becoming a weekly occurrence. It took about 30 seconds to permanently damage the lives of so many simply gathered for a parade. You saw massive amounts of blood in the people that were gone. Their injuries were horrific. Police say the suspect, 21-year-old Robert Cremo, dressed in women's clothing to conceal his identity. They also say in the past, the suspect had weapons removed from his home and made threats against people's lives. We do believe Cremo pre-planned this attack for several weeks. The horrors in Highland Park highlight a uniquely American crisis. The satirical news website The Onion posting an evergreen headline for the 26th time. No way to prevent this, says the only nation where this regularly happens. We are a nation that has decided, for better or worse, to accept a certain amount of risk in our lives in the sense that we have encoded firearm ownership as a constitutional right. We are doing something consequential. After three decades, Washington passed new gun legislation in June, aiming to address root causes for mass shootings. Some of that involves mental health counseling, trauma counseling, It didn't include laws banning assault rifles, often a common link. All of these weapons and these mass shootings have been legally obtained. That should tell us that the laws are not doing their job. There have been more than a dozen mass shootings in the U.S. since July 1st, with the White House again lowering its flag. Highland Park's name is now etched into a never-ending list as this community prepares to stand tall, knowing it won't be the last. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. The trial of the Dutch man accused of harassing B.C. teenager Amanda Todd before she took her own life has heard from a friend of Amanda's who alerted police after seeing a graphic photo of her on social media. Krista Dow reports. 
The six-week extortion and harassment trial continued Tuesday with the Crown calling six witnesses to the stand, among them a friend of Amanda's who, at 13 years old, James Bennett, called police after finding a topless photo of Amanda online. The now 24-year-old testified that a graphic photo of Amanda Todd had been posted on various Facebook pages, including his. The teen said he deleted the photo from Facebook and then called police. Bennett telling the court he then made a post asking others to delete the photo and report it too. According to his testimony, the child pornography was posted by a Facebook user by the name of Austin Collins. When Crown asked if he knew an Austin Collins, Bennett said personally, no, they were only friends on Facebook and he wasn't particularly selective about who he was Facebook friends with. The defense did not cross-examine Bennett. It felt like the right thing to do. It was um, child pornography. It was it was disturbing. It, I didn't I yeah I, I didn't want it to be well, I didn't want those images to be shared with my friend, and it infuriated me to find out that I was the only one who came forward. That was for sure. I I, I was expecting there to be a group of us in there. His actions a decade ago being praised by Amanda's mother Carol Todd, who met him for the first time Tuesday. For a 13-year-old to be so wise and to do that. Um, and especially, too, because it was my daughter, Amanda. Um, it just warms my heart that um, he did this. Court also heard from three RCMP officers called to investigate the online harassment complaint back in 2011, as well as a former vice principal at the school Amanda attended, who says she helped to support Amanda. The Crown is arguing that it was 44-year-old Aiden Coban who was extorting and harassing the 15-year-old teen. The jury is excused until Thursday while the court deals with the matter. The trial is expected to last three more weeks. Krista Dow, Global News. A new poll has found 92% of respondents want a fourth dispatch option when they call 911. The survey was conducted for the Crisis Centre of BC. It found the vast majority of those polled would like the option to be referred to mental health crisis services in a 911 call in addition to the traditional police, fire and paramedic options. According to the Crisis Centre, many mental health service calls can be handled without police or hospital intervention, but integrating the systems does cause with the cost. According to the poll, 71% of respondents would be willing to financially support the changes through a levy on their monthly cell phone bill. A familiar face for many British Columbians over the past couple of years is now the new top doctor on Vancouver Island. Island Health has named Dr. Rekha Gustafson as its new chief medical health officer. Gustafson was seen often during the pandemic standing in for Dr. Bonnie Henry at COVID-19 briefings. Gustafson takes over from Dr. Richard Stanwick, who retired at the end of last year after more than 25 years in the health sector on Vancouver Island. Still to come, preserving a piece of BC history. Welcome to Paldi, a place for everyone. The island town you might not know about and how it was far ahead of its time. Plus, Highway 97. We'll just float through. It lasted less than an hour and left a big mess behind. The deluge and flash flooding that soaked Penticton next. 
Big cleanup in Penticton, 24 hours after a flash rain event caused flooding all over the city. As Taya Fast reports, several properties were damaged and more than a dozen people have been forced from their homes. Over 12 millimeters of rain fell in just 45 minutes on Monday, triggering flash floods throughout Penticton. Usually the rain falls over a longer period of time and our infrastructure can, or stormwater infrastructure can handle that and uh, deal with the rain flow events. But once it all happens at once, then you get the block ups and the debris and all those sort of things. So it's uh, quite unique. The Emergency Operations Centre received 86 reports of properties damaged by flooding across the community. It's scattered throughout the community. Um, there's a mix of single family homes, there's some multi-family buildings that were impacted, so some larger complexes. So in terms of basement flooding, parking lot, uh, lower level parking lot floodings. The city declared a local state of emergency on Monday to allow emergency crews to access private properties. The properties will be revisited again today or in the process of being revisited to confirm conditions by the city's rapid response assessment team uh, as we speak. A total of 16 people have been displaced and the severity of all the damage remains unclear. And again if you were told to evacuate yesterday during the flooding please call our emergency services or emergency support services team at 1-833-498-3770 or contact them at the 199 Ella Street property in the downtown. Now this area of Penticton looked a lot different just over 24 hours ago when water was gushing through Johnson Road. But as you can tell from behind me here, the road is now completely dry and all that's left is some mud and rocks. But our public infrastructure teams, they're making sure that the stormwater infrastructure is clear of any debris that uh, may have come into the system during the event and making sure that those uh, the pipes and the underground infrastructure is ready for any future events. More severe weather is in the forecast for Wednesday and Thursday and the Emergency Operations Centre says they will be monitoring weather patterns over the next couple days. TFS, Global News, Penticton. It's only July 5th and it's been a pretty crazy month already. Uh, Yvonne Shell is here with a look at our weather. Yvonne? Yeah, we are going to be tracking the risk of thunderstorms once again for the southern interior. I'll have more on that coming up in just a moment. But across Metro Vancouver, we managed to see a few breaks out there and temperatures have warmed up as well. We're currently sitting at 20. We've got a northwesterly wind at 17 kilometers per hour. A few spots I wanted to outline with the Humidex. Hope feeling like 27 away from the water. Abbotsford 26 and inland for Port Alberni with that Humidex making it feel like 24. A few hot spots or warmer areas across the province today with Lytton across the, uh, getting up to 28 degrees, Kamloops 25 and trail the day topping out at 27. Now the weather story for Metro Vancouver overnight tonight will hang on to cloud cover. 30% chance of a shower will have a fair bit of cloud cover through the day. Little in terms of precipitation but it'll be spotty and temperatures getting up to 20 as a daytime high. We've got a low and that's just what's sitting offshore and giving us that instability. It'll pick up again especially for the central and southern half of the province. And it's the afternoon and early evening that'll be a concern for both Wednesday and leading in towards our Thursday as well with that risk of thunderstorms. So we'll keep that in mind and that'll increase the flood concerns across the province with the latest from the BC River Forecast Centre. Quinell River still underneath the flood warning. Flood watch where it may exceed Bankful. Areas in orange, the Nechaco, Chocolton, as well as the Thompson included within that and high stream flow advisory. Still in effect for much of the southern interior and extending into the southeast corners with the Kootenai included within that. So we've got that instability tomorrow inland as we'll see that risk of thunderstorms. It picks up for the central and southern half of the province. Highs tomorrow into the mid
Southeast, Whistler could see a slight risk of a thunderstorm, 18 as the high, and extending into the Fraser Valley as well. Now, along the south coast, we'll have a fair bit of cloud cover tomorrow. A greater chance for showers looks to be on a Thursday, and then it rebounds Friday, and then just in time as we get in towards the weekend, we'll be back into some sunshine. Tonight's weather window, a beautiful shot. This one, a summer sunset captured in Tofino, and this one was taken by Matt. Soph? Oh, wow. That is beautiful. All right, thanks very much, Yvonne. Squire is here now. What you got, Squire? Well, um, at Wimbledon today, huge comeback by Novak Djokovic. We'll talk about that. Canada Soccer says the uh, men's national team will have three warm-up games before the World Cup in late November. And also, we'll catch up with the Bollywood boys. You gotta say Bollywood boys. Also ahead tonight, the tiny town with the big impact on BC history. That's later. That's your introduction introductory music. It was very heavy. That very dramatic. I know. I feel like I should just do a furrowed brow sportscast here. Try it. I don't think like. it would work, actually. It's not you. It's not me. And I don't have the material for it either. A, uh, a furrowed brow? No, no, just the material. <laughs> it's not that dark. Uh, tonight's uh, tonight. See, I messed it up now. I've, that threw me right off. Tonight, Canada's national women's team plays Trinidad and Tobago. It's the start of the uh, final qualifying tournament for next year's Women's World Cup of Soccer. And Canada is expected to qualify. We are one of the best teams in the world. Today, uh, Canada Soccer said it has sent a new contract offer to the players of both national teams in hopes of getting the money problems straightened away. Now, Canada Soccer also said the men's national team will play three warm-up games before the World Cup starts on November 23rd when Canada plays Belgium. Two of the games will be in Europe on September 23rd and the 27th. We don't know the opponents of those games yet. And they also want a final warm-up game in early November. Off to Wimbledon. Quarter-final action. Novak Djokovic against Yannick Sinner. And Sinner was a winner in the first two sets. Drop shot, no problem. So he's got Novak Djokovic down 0-2. But Djokovic... Goes to the drop shot again, and this time, it works. That's beautiful. He would force a fifth set. Watch this shot in the fifth set by Djokovic. Oy. Oh, my goodness. And everything is okay. Arms and especially legs. And this is match point, and Djokovic is on to his 11th. Wimbledon semifinal. He'll take on Cameron Norrie tomorrow. Rafael Nadal plays. Mike Greer has been named the general manager of the San Jose Sharks. He is the first black GM in NHL history and somebody who has been around the NHL a long, long time. He was a ninth-round draft choice, ninth round, and still played over 1,000 games. That's not something you see very often in the NHL. And being a high-level sports manager is something that is in his family. His brother, Chris, is the GM of the Miami Dolphins. And uh, his father, Bobby, was the director of scouting 
for the Houston Texans. Well, the Bollywood boys have been wrestling since 2004. Unlike pretty much every other pro wrestler, they had to work their way up. But unlike most pro wrestlers, these two made it all the way to the WWE. Not many do. And they worked alongside the biggest names in the business there. And after being released by the WWE last June, they have decided to try to get back there one more time. For 18 years, Gerv Sira and his brother Harv have laced up their wrestling boots and stepped in the rings, from quaint gymnasiums to the bright lights of the WWE, even into video games. And now they've gone full circle in the squared circle, returning to the independent circuit. With the goal of reaching the big time for a second time. We're on our second mountain now, you know, we're no longer there. I would say it's harder going, climbing back than it was the first time. It yeah. seems almost easy because you're, yeah, it's one thing to wear you're naive to it. It's one thing to wear the jersey, it's one thing to keep it on. I mean, we had a beautiful five-year run. You know, we traveled the world, you know, made a beautiful living. But to my brother's point, this is a real test. There's so much we wanted to accomplish with WWE. We wanted to win tag titles. We wanted to get on pay-per-views. And unfortunately, we didn't get to that part yet. But... Here we are working towards, you know, the second run, so to speak. Which means doing shows in their old stomping grounds, like the Commodore Ballroom, for Nation Extreme Wrestling. Independent wrestling's booming. There's a lot of guys who are not in, let's say, the big leagues or WWE or TV wrestling, but are making a lot of money doing this around the world. Here it's more interactive. It's more, you get the crowd immersed. Where, when you're TV wrestling, it's Hollywood. To the other wrestlers, Harv and Gerv are like royalty, and they're happy to offer advice on what to do in the ring and how to work the crowd, things they learn from some of the biggest names in the business. It's like crowd psychology, listening yeah. to the crowd, when to do something, when not to do something, what kind of reaction do you want from the crowd? And the person who really taught us was Cena, because he's the master of crowd psychology. It's like, if you want to get the crowd going a little bit, maybe throw a dropkick. For the Bollywood boys, all that you have to go through to stay in the wrestling business is still fun for them. And climbing the mountain a second time would be even more glorious than doing it the first time. Now the true test and your real passion is going to kick in that, that was a guy named Terry Taylor. He was like, this is going to be your biggest character test in life as a person. To see if you can still want to do this after you've been there. You've been to the top of the mountain. It's like now, okay. And we haven't missed a beat. Here we are. Fire. What's that? Squire on fire. I was just thinking about what your wrestling name would be. Super Shrimp. <laughs> I don't know. We need to. It would be cool to go on the top ropes just once, to stand on the top <laughs> ropes and then jump on somebody. It, you know what we need to do is bring wrestling back to this very. It used studio. to be in this studio. All Star Wrestling was in this studio. Gene Kaniski, and Don Leo, Jonathan. And then you can get on the top. Moral Ronaldo used to. And be Squire the Flying Squirrel. As Marshall. Flying squirrel could be good too. All right, thank you, my friend. Up next, a BC Ghost Town brought back to life in a new book. This is BC with Jay Durant, is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. I'm standing by with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight, Jordan. Sophie, we are tracking a potential tragedy tonight on Highway 1 near Sorrento. We're told two vehicles collided on the Trans-Canada at Little River Road west of Sorrento early this afternoon. BC Emergency Health Services confirms it responded with four ground ambulances with no one being transported to hospital. Unconfirmed reports 
say three people were killed. Plus, a drugs and weapons bust in the Comox Valley that police say undoubtedly saved lives. Details tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. All right, we'll see you then. Thank you, Jordan. Well, just outside of Duncan on Vancouver Island are the remnants of a once vibrant village. Paldi was one of our province's first South Asian settlements, but really everyone was welcome there. Jay Durant has more on the tiny town that had a huge impact. For decades, the Paldi Jermela celebration has continued on the site that was at one time one of the biggest Sikh communities in all of Canada. And the history is being relived in a new book for elementary school students. It's a window into uh, this part of Canadian history right, where the South Asian community was just getting settled here on the West Coast. Harmon Pander's latest work tells the story of Paldi on Vancouver Island, just outside of Duncan, and its founder, Mayo Singh, who opened a lumber mill in 1917 that welcomed workers from all over. No one was ever turned away. No one was left out, no one was left behind. They were given shelter, food, everything. The town attracted people from all around BC, Canada, and the world. It became famous as a place where everyone was paid equally and treated fairly. Well, I would say that Paldi is really the epicenter and also the blueprint for multiculturalism in Canada. There was no bigotism. It was all just everybody's equal, the same person, and uh, everybody, got, everybody got along just fine. Eventually, the mill closed, business declined, and people started moving away. By the mid-1970s, almost everybody had left. The temple is the only building that still remains. And I always say to the people, it's from the past pioneers, spirits that still live here in the Gudwara temple and around here. <laughs> A tribute to the founding families of Paldi, what the community was able to achieve in those early years and the legacy that lives on to this day. I'm grateful for the pioneers of Paldi because I know my family wouldn't be here. As long as we're here, we're running, which hopefully we'll be there for another hundred years. Paldi is a world renowned. It's a, a place where everything started. Jay Durant, Global News. Stop by and visit it next time you're on the island. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, don't forget to email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. All right, Yvonne will give you the last word on weather and hopefully we'll see some more sunshine as we get further and further into July. <laughs> yes, we will. Bit of a blip though for tomorrow. It's more cloud cover, isolated showers. The wettest day so far maybe on Thursday with showers through the day and then it rebounds Friday and it's great timing as we get in towards the weekend. Not nearly as cold though with the cloud cover that we have over the next couple of days. So for those of you who are on vacation this week, Chris Galis. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're enjoying uh, the little bit of sunshine that, that we've been having so far. That's all for us tonight. Thanks for joining us. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.